Many of us have experienced uh, the veil of separation uh, on an airplane uh, that separates the haves from the have-nots. It's the curtain that separates the sorry saps and coach from the privileged people in first class. I was at the Fort Wayne Airport not too long ago, uh, heading to Colorado by way of Indianapolis, and I saw a friend from church at the airport. I don't want to reveal his identity. We'll just call him Jerry P. (laughs) Jerry is a world traveler, and he said to me, "Uh, you want to fly first class? I said, what's that? And I said, sure. He said, let me make a call. And he went and he made a call. He came back. He said, I just booked you uh, a first-class seat on your flight from Indy to Colorado. And I got to tell you, it's my first time. It was awesome. <laughs> There's one flight attendant, sometimes two, for just a small group of passengers. The beverages flow free and constant. And the bathroom, thankfully, is never crowded. So uh, for someone like me with a pea-sized bladder, that's a great thing. Uh, There's enough arm room and leg room for Shaquille Deneff to stretch out. (laughs) First-class passengers really are first. They're first on the plane. They're first off the plane. And for someone like me who craves the efficient use of time, this is spectacular. Jerry used his power, his perks, his privilege to get me out of coach, past the curtain, into a first-class experience. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there were no curtains separating the haves from the have-nots. Everyone experienced first-class, perfect intimacy with God, perfect intimacy with each other, harmony with the creation. But then... Adam and Eve chose coach and began to distance themselves from God, from each other, exploit the creation. And then all of a sudden, there are curtains, a veil of fig leaves. The humans are banished from the garden, and there's a curtain, sort of, that keeps them out of the garden. It's cherubim with a flaming sword. And it's curtains for the human race. Curtains of lust, curtains of greed, curtains of pride, curtains of exploitation, curtains of injustice, curtains of oppression, curtains, curtains, curtains. Jewish worship through the Old Testament and even into the time of Jesus was all about the curtains that came with the fall. In fact, in the tabernacle and later the temple, there are all kinds of curtains separating people from God and people from people. In the time of Jesus, uh, the temple had lots of segregation. So you had in the uh, furthest area, you had the court of the Gentiles. People segregated because of their ethnicity. A little further in, you had the outer court, which was for Jewish women, separated, segregated because of their gender. And then in the inner court, you had Jewish men. And then further in, you had the holy place where the priests hung out, separated, segregated because of their religious status. 
Further in, you had the most holy place, which was where the high priest hung out. And then the furthest in, you had back behind the curtain this place called the Holy of Holies, where one person, the high priest, entered once each year. And the curtain that separated the most holy place from the Holy of Holies was a lot bigger than this one. Took 85 young women to sew it. Took 300 priests to carry it. That's how big it was. It was a massive curtain reminding the people of their separation from the presence of God. Segregated from each other based on ethnicity or gender or religious status. Curtains. But then something happened. Jesus happened. And when it was curtains for Jesus, he cut the curtains of separation. The Gospels tell us that large, massive curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. From the top where only God could start the tear on that massive curtain by grace. And it happened at a time of day when the veil was torn in two, when people were worshiping. And so Gentiles way out here and women way out here and those who weren't ordained over here, everybody could see into the Holy of Holies and have access to the presence of God because of the curtain Jesus Christ cut. And don't miss this. When Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced all of the curtains of separation that he came to cut. A curtain of separation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A curtain of separation from people. They hurled insults. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. A curtain of separation from basic human needs. He said, I thirst. But all of the curtains have been cut by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, and reign of Jesus Christ, the curtain-cutting king. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. I want to, in the time we have left, explore the curtains that Jesus cut. Curtain of separation, uh, separating people from God, evangelism, a curtain separating people from people, peacemaking, and a curtain separating people from basic needs, justice. And the Sermon on the Mount, or sorry, the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, we're gonna, that's going to be a home base for us. And uh, it's one that we've heard before. We've heard many sermons on the parable, all of them good. Most of the time we're asked to take the perspective of the younger son who needed God's grace and or the older brother who was dutiful but distant and needed to get over it. But I think Jesus told the parable primarily to invite us to empathize with the Father, to partner with the Father in cutting the curtains that separate people from a first-class life. What I'm saying is that the parable of the prodigal son is not just a theological statement about God. It's actually a missional map for the church. So one of the curtains that Jesus cut is the curtain that separates people from God. Call that evangelism. 
In the parable, the younger son goes off to a distant land far from the father. He squanders all he has. Uh, he experiences famine and need. He thought that somehow the distant land of pleasure or possessions could satisfy him. And when he gets what he wants, he finds out it's not what he wants. And he's ready to settle for pig pods. And then he comes to his senses and starts to head back home to the father. God has placed us in the lives of people who take that same pattern, who go off to a distant land, power, pleasure, possessions, who squander all that they have to get what they want and realize it's not what they want. And they experience famine and need and desperation. And they begin to come to their senses. All of us have gone astray. And God has placed us in the lives of people who are in a far off land so that when they come to their senses, we get to be there and point the way back to the Father. That's evangelism. That's what we're called to do. And Jesus was the ultimate evangelist. John's gospel portrays Jesus as the evangelist. We have these beautiful snapshots in John's gospel of Jesus interacting with people evangelistically on both sides of the tracks. So in John 3, you have Jesus connecting with a guy who had gone off to a far-off land of religious goodness and morality, Nicodemus. He needed to be saved from his goodness. And then you have somebody on the other side of the tracks, like the woman in John 4, the hated half-breed, the Samaritan woman, who went off to the distant land of seeking her deepest needs met in a man, and she was in famine and needed to be saved. And all throughout the Gospel of John, you get these beautiful snapshots of Jesus evangelistically connecting with people. And you have these wonderful sayings of Jesus, evangelistic ones, like early on, John 3, 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And then in John 14, toward the end, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. Evangelism is really one beggar settling for pig pods, telling another beggar where to find bread. And Jesus Christ is the bread of life. There is no life outside of Christ. There is no life outside of Christ. He's it. And he has tagged us. So now we're it. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm not an evangelist. I don't want to come across as a religious bigot, tell people where to find home, share my testimony, invite people to church. I don't want to offend anyone. I get it. But when people all around us are starving and settling for pig pods and we have soul food to offer that will satisfy their deepest needs, to offer it is not offensive, to withhold it actually is. 
The church needs to be about grace giving, but we also need to be about truth telling. Grace without truth is no grace at all. I was uh, in San Francisco years ago, Easter weekend, and we went to this uh, well-known church, Amy and I, in San Francisco on Easter Sunday morning, and we waited in this long line, about a quarter of a mile long line around the block waiting to get into this church. And all around us were people who looked like they hadn't slept in a long time, like they stayed up all night. We could smell the booze. We could see that people were intoxicated. They were high. And that wasn't uncomfortable for us. We were excited. People are going to experience resurrection from the dead this morning. We get into the church. We're packed in there like sardines. There's this 20-something-year-old woman sleeping on my shoulder. She's high as a kite. And I'm smiling ear to ear. She's going to, if she can stay awake for one or two minutes, she's going to experience resurrection. 45 minutes in, the name of Jesus on Easter Sunday was barely mentioned. I don't know if it was even mentioned, let alone the resurrection. And I stormed out of that church grieved. Today I realize that there have been so many times when I have been around people in a far off land who are settling for pig pods when they could have a seat at the table of the Father. And for reasons of self-absorption or fear of embarrassment, I kept my mouth shut instead of pointing the way home. You don't have to be a Billy Graham to do evangelism. You can be a rich rock hind. I am here today in the church because of a tall, blonde-haired guy with a crazy loud laugh named Rich Rockhind who loved me enough to tell me what Jesus had done for him and could do for me too. And you are sitting where you're sitting because someone loved you enough to partner with Christ in cutting the curtain that separated you from God. And here you are. Let's partner with Christ in cutting the curtains. Evangelism. How do we do it? Here's how we do it. Eat, pray, love. It's the title of a Julia Roberts movie. I've never seen the movie. Don't intend on seeing the movie. But I like the title. Eat, pray, love. That's the work of evangelism. Think of someone in your life, family member, friend, neighbor, coworker, who right now is in a faraway land, far from the Father, settling for pig pods. For the next six months, commit first to eating with that person, a meal, breakfast, lunch. If you're at a distance, Skype and eat lunch while you're Skyping. Eat monthly for six months with that person. And don't force God into the conversation. God will come up, trust me. And when he comes up, Jump in with a knife and fork of grace and truth. Eat monthly. Pray daily. Pray with groans interceding for that person to experience life in Christ. Empathize with that person's situation as if it were your own. Feel what it's like and think what it's like to be them. Eat monthly. Pray daily. Love weekly. Do one act of love once a week for that person. It might be as simple as a text 
with a funny YouTube clip to cheer them up. It might be washing their car or watching their kids or washing their kids. <laughs> it might be just giving them a gift for no reason at all. Just eat monthly, pray daily, love weekly over six months and watch God tear that curtain to shreds and experience the joy of evangelism. There's more joy, Jesus said, over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who stayed home. Jesus also cuts the curtain that separates people from people. The father goes out and pleads with both sons. He empathizes with both sons. He goes to the older and says, I think it's verse 28, you're always with me. All I have is yours, but we had to celebrate. Your brother was dead and he's alive again. Parents love when their kids love each other and there's peace in the home, don't we? Well, so does God. Matthew's gospel especially paints Jesus as a peacemaker. The only place we find uh, this saying in, from Jesus is in Matthew. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. It's the only beatitude of the eight that actually has an identity marker with it. How do we know someone's a child of God? By how well they argue, how, how often they're right, their level of intelligence? We're known as a child of God by our capacity to make peace. And then Jesus unpacks this in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, especially here when he says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but whoever says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus continues, therefore, if you're offering your gift to God at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift to God there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Make peace with your brother or sister. Then come and worship God. What Jesus is so clearly exclaiming is that it's impossible to have peace with God and not have peace with your brother or sister. True reconciliation with the Father will lead inevitably to reconciliation with your brothers and sisters. There's no getting around it. Peace. You know, in the early church, the greatest missional tool the proof for the existence of God in Christ was not going door to door and passing out tracts. It was actually Jew and Gentile who were taught for thousands of years to hate each other, getting reconciled to God in Christ, and because of their reconciliation with God, were reconciling with each other. And the world took notice. But if you jump into the middle of a fight to make peace, you're going to get hit. 
Christ's body was broken. His blood was shed to make the two one. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Martin Luther King Jr. was not only a justice seeker, he was a peacemaker. He jumped into the fight and he took some hits. I've been studying for the last year the sermons and speeches of King. And when he's speaking to black audiences, he calls them to empathize with what he calls our white brothers and sisters. And when he speaks to white audiences, he calls them to empathize with what he says is our black brothers and sisters. He empathized with both and called them to empathize with each other. And it got him killed. But not before he put a significant cut in the curtain that separated those two groups. Peacemaker. Our world is full of angry birds, man. Angry people. I read a story last week about a fight breaking out at a punk rock concert, which is not unusual. <laughs> what is unusual is that the lead singer of the band was the one who got in the fight. He was ranting about politics, bad-mouthing Trump, and one of the guys in the audience for two songs held up one of his fingers to the lead singer, and it wasn't his pinky or his thumb. And so after two songs, the lead singer calls the guy up on stage spits in his face, and starts punching him in the face. Now, Christians would never punch people in the face. But our words pack quite a punch. How often do we find ourselves in situations on Facebook, even in the church, where we have a chance to either throw Water or fuel on the fire of a conflict. And we allow maybe the hostility out there in the world to rub off on us in here. And we become angry birds. And even in a context where a lot of us live and study, work, a Christian university can become a place of discord and dissension. Because students, you're competing with each other for grades or for a spot on the team. Those of us who work at these universities uh, compete with each other for promotions and recognition. And if we're not careful, we can use our words to gossip and backbite and berate and belittle, even if we don't initiate the words. We're called to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. So two applications for us. First, make peace with someone at odds with you. Initiate peace with someone at odds with you. Even if they don't know you're at odds with them, <laughs> make peace. Pack a punch with your words like these words. I'm sorry. I forgive you. Let's start fresh. Some more words in prayer. Pray for that person's flourishing, even if you don't like them. Then here's some more things we can do with our words. Talk good about that person or group behind their back. 
Initiate peace with someone at odds with you. And even if you don't get peace with each other, there will be peace in your heart because you did everything you could. Secondly, initiate peace between two people or groups at odds with each other. Like the father in the parable, go out to both groups. Plead with both groups. Empathize with both groups. Advocate for both groups to bring the two together. We do this with our kids all the time, don't we? I go to my older son, I say, dude, your sister just wants to hang out with you. I know she's always in your business, but she loves you and looks up to you. And then I go to her and I say, I know your brother is angry when he plays basketball and he has to gloat and dunk in your face and, and uh, he's gone through puberty and stuff and he's, he's a mess and he's angry and he's hairy and scary and his voice is cracking. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> Make peace. That simple. The byproduct of being a peacemaker is actually, well, peace. To go to bed at night knowing that you did everything possible to live at peace with people, Romans 12, 18, everyone. To not speak an evil word of anyone. To not worry about impressing or outdoing or competing Final curtain, Jesus cuts, is the curtain that separates people from needs. Justice. The father in the parable provided a fattened calf for his hungry son. He met that need. Kid was hungry. He said, bring the robe, uh, bring the sandals, put it on his feet. He provided clothing, but more than clothing, the robe and the sandals especially reflected this kid's identity and belonging. He was not a sandalless slave. He was a son. Then he said, put the ring on his finger, a sign of empowerment and dignity. You see that this father is meeting all the categories of needs in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, physiological basic needs and self-actualizing needs. The father meets them all. The way to peace, which I talked about a minute ago, is on the highway of justice. There can be no peace without justice. But the two can live on the same street. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is shown as a justice seeker. First words out of Jesus' mouth, the first sermon he preached, Luke 4, Jesus basically quoting Isaiah, says that he is going to centralize the marginalized in his ministry, the poor, the imprisoned, the sick. A little bit later in Luke 4, the foreigner. Those on the margins will be put in the center of Jesus' ministry. In in, in Luke, uh, Jesus has as the stars of his story marginalized widows and hated half-breeds, the good Samaritan. Then you have that famous passage in Luke uh, uh, Luke 10. Uh, It's only in Luke's gospel, Mary and Martha. 
You remember Martha is busy in the kitchen serving Jesus and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And we think the, the text is about not being too busy serving God to be with God. And that's not really what it's about primarily. Mary was doing the countercultural thing. She refused to be in the kitchen so that she could sit at the feet of Jesus the rabbi as a disciple, a role that was reserved only for men. And Mary is audaciously sitting in the spot that should be taken by a man. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. Jesus cut to shreds the curtain of injustice toward women. He's always doing that. The church has gotten a bad rap about our lack of justice seeking, and we deserve it. But let's remember our heritage. The church has always been on the front lines of partnering with Christ to cut the curtains that separate people from what they need. Alcoholics Anonymous started by a Christian. The abolition of slavery instigated by the church. The equality of women instigated by the church. Racial, racial reconciliation initiated by Christian leaders. The building of hospitals, schools, and orphanages in places no one who in their right mind would dare to go, initiated by the church. Think William and Catherine Booth, Salvation Army. Catherine Booth especially. She exposed the problem of human trafficking. She got uh, the age of sexual consent to be raised to 16, a big deal. And there's probably no other person in the history of the church who paved the way for female preachers like Catherine Booth did. That's our heritage. And we betray that heritage when we sit on the safe sidelines watching injustice perpetuated on the field. I had a, uh, an old crotchety guy named Charlie in my church. He was the guy who sat there like this the whole service, like some of you, actually. <laughs> Bored to death with church. Dying a slow spiritual death in the church. One day, uh, Charlie goes to his favorite hardware store, and there's about 20 homeless people loitering outside, and he avoids eye contact and goes the long way to get in. This happens several times until Charlie gets into a conversation with one of the homeless guys, Johnny. Johnny was in his 40s, looked like he was in his 60s. Alcoholism had diminished his person. Well, Charlie and Johnny became good friends, best friends. Charlie took them to his house for meals, took them to church. They went everywhere together. And it wasn't a condescending, I'll be your friend, oh homeless man. It was mutual. They really liked each other, and it was good. They were perfect for each other because they were both rough around the edges. And I remember one day, Charlie got about 15 guys from the church. 
went to Home Depot and bought a whole bunch of building materials. They went to the woods behind the Walmart where 20 homeless people lived, including a mother with a three-year-old. And in the late fall, they built shelters, illegally, by the way, for those homeless people to have some warmth. I watched Charlie get raised from death to life spiritually. And it wasn't a hymn sing or a potluck or a small group or another church service that did it. It was partnering with the God of the universe to cut the curtains that separate people from what they need most. Twelve years later, that church is still at it, opening their doors to the homeless in the winter months, advocating for the homeless in the community, not because some pastor told them to, but because some old crotchety layman named Charlie partnered with God to do justice. You want purpose? Seek justice. Know someone who's hungry? Give them food. Know someone who's naked? Give them clothes. You know a kid who needs to feel like they belong, adopt or foster or be a part of Kids Hope. You know someone who feels ostracized or marginalized because of their gender or ethnicity or income or neighborhood. Fight the power in Jesus' name. Want purpose? Seek justice. Well, this is all overwhelming. I think it is anyway. Because it's not just picking one or two of these, evangelism, peacemaking, justice. You actually have to do all three. Or there'll be missional imbalance in this three-legged stool. And that's a challenge. And I confess, I didn't want to preach this sermon today. I told myself it's because it's a three-point sermon, and I don't particularly like three-point sermons. <laughs> but that's not why. I didn't want to preach this sermon because I didn't want to be accountable to live it. But here's the bottom line. If in this world we are like Jesus, if we are Christ's ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us, if the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in us, we will be engaged in curtain-cutting mission with him. And the good news is that he empowers us to do this. The best way to end the sermon where we feel challenged and perhaps overwhelmed is to leave the pig pods come to the table of the Father and experience divine means of grace. At the table of the Father, we get the feast on the Lamb. And when we take Christ in, he empowers us to go out in curtain-cutting mission. He always has. He always will. Blessed be the name of the Lord.